Uh, turn in your copy of Scripture, if you would, to Revelation chapter 9. <clears throat> uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 1033. Uh, when you found Revelation 9, would you please stand for the reading and hearing of God's holy word? I'll be reading verses 13 through 21 of this passage. It brings this chapter to conclusion as we consider the sixth trumpet today. Uh, Revelation 9, verses 13 through 21. This is the word of the living God. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. May God add his blessing on this, the reading of his holy and inspired word. Please be seated. After reading a text like this, you won't be surprised to learn that I have some bad news for us. Uh, In a very brief uh, period of time, your tax returns will be due. (laughs) Now, now some of you, uh, some of you, the the burden of tax season is simply that you have something more that you have to do. You look forward to getting some kind of a tax return. Um, uh, You have a portion of your paycheck, of course, that's withheld uh, every time. Um, I, like some of you, have to actually turn in a quarterly, uh, a, quarter, a check every quarter, as though I want to give it to the government. <laughs> uh, we don't like taxes, uh, not only because of what it is that we're giving away, uh, but there's something odd when there is a percentage of what is ours that's given. Uh, when there's a percentage that's given, we have this kind of nagging sense in the back of our minds that someone is claiming jurisdiction over the whole. (laughs) They take a portion of whatever it is we have, um, as though there's jurisdiction over the whole. That's the hard reality of a percentage. 
There's something like that, of course, with the tithe. We read about that earlier. There's a reminder that though we give a tenth to the Lord, it's as the Lord actually has a claim to our good stewardship of the whole. It's a tenth, and there's a claim that he makes still upon the whole. Something like that in having one day and seven of rest. The Lord claims not only one day, but the whole of our lives. Uh, Every moment, every day belongs to him. Well, in our texts, we read that a third of mankind was killed, a portion of the whole, but what about the rest of mankind? There's some sense that what we see there is representative of what looms over the whole. Um, Now, this is a sobering passage. There's no way around it. Um, I do want to remind you, and we'll return to this, of what is an important context, even as we dig into these sober words, important context uh, that we learned about earlier in this chapter, and we see a hint at it in verse 4 of chapter 9. There were those that were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. As sobering as this passage is, please hear this. This is part of the point of these words. You need the seal of God. You need the seal. If there's anything sobering in these words that would distress us, it highlights and shows the need for the seal of God. Why do we need the seal? Well, verses 13 and 19, I think, make it very clear. There is no humanly possible way to stop this army. We need the seal because there is no humanly possible way to stop this army. The text heaps, it seems, description upon description and presses home this point. So I'm going to do the same thing. I've got A through What is it? A through H here for you. (laughs) A through H of why there is no humanly possible way to stop this army. A, because it begins and they're released by a heavenly command. Look at verse 13. Six angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels. Here here is a voice that comes from before God, from heaven. Um, If this is where the command comes to release this army, to whom will you appeal, appeal when this army comes? Look again, it's not only from before God, but in particular, here is this uh, this uh, this uh, uh, religious kind of structure that we've seen before, the four horns of the golden altar. You recall, of course, the golden altar with the prayers of the saints ascending unto the Lord. Here's a voice from the four horns of the golden altar. Upon what altar will your prayers ascend to the Lord? When it is from this altar that a command is given that this army is released. There is no humanly possible way to stop this army. 
However unholy or demonic the instrument is, there is behind it a divine purpose. B, there is no safe place upon the earth. There's no safe place upon the earth. Look at verse 14, if you would. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. The river Euphrates uh, comes up quite a bit in the Old Testament. It's a river that runs uh, from the northern, the northern part of the land of promise, and it heads uh, southeast down uh, through Babylon, and it's uh, it's given as a kind of outer limit of the promised land. Genesis 15 says this. Genesis 15, verse 18, as the Lord is speaking to Abram, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Here's this outer limit of what is the land that is promised. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, it describes armies coming from the north. That is probably a reference again to what is this river uh, uh, being the, uh, the upper uh, northernmost boundary of the land of promise. Well, here's part of the point, what we have. There's no safe place. Uh, if there is a place that for a time had enjoyed the special protection of God, not even that place is now safe. Uh, this comes up again uh, later in the book of Revelation. Revelation 16, giving us a clearer idea of where it is um, that, uh, that this army travels. Revelation 16, verse 12, in a parallel passage in this book, it says that there is a bowl that is poured on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So here are those who are coming from the east into this land. And clearly in this text in Revelation 9, we're dealing with uh, what are whole world realities as it talks about the third of mankind and the rest of mankind. So it's not simply talking about a localized reality, but saying this, that not even that place is safe. Where would we go? There's no humanly possible way to stop this army. See, notice the time that's described. Verse 15, so the four angels who have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released. There's a precision to it. Why? Because of what is determined by the Lord. He knows the time. Um, if, uh, if, if you have something planned, you know something's going to happen in the year, it could almost happen any time of year, right? And if you have it narrowed down to the month, you know any time of that month, but down to the day and the hour when the plans are set, you're going to make sure it happens. Everything's ready and prepared. You don't miss it. So also this, that which is prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. But notice also the way in which this, this sequence runs. It goes from shortest to greatest. Because while it is precise in terms of the mind of God, there is a duration to it. And it's a horrifying and terrifying duration. The time makes plain that there is no humanly possible way to stop this army. Their, their purpose, look again at verse 15. They were released, why? Released to kill a third of mankind. Released not simply to threaten. Released not simply to, uh, to, to brandish that which may kill some, but released for the purpose of accomplishing something. Released to kill a third of mankind. And we hear that in verse 18. By these three plagues, 
a third of mankind was killed. They accomplish what they have been released to do. E, their number. Their number makes clear that there is no humanly possible way to stop this army. Look at verse 16. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Now, if you take this literally, what is this? 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. Twice 100 million is 200 million. Now, I don't, I don't know um, uh, uh, the military realities all that well, but my understanding is I think the largest standing army is something like 2 million people. This is 100 times that. 200 million. Revelation 5, 11, listen to this. This is startling. This is a place where John um, has a vision of what it is before the throne room of God and the glorious heavenly places. It says this in Revelation 5, 11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads. Here's what we need to notice. It's the same language that's used now in Revelation 9. Myriads of myriads, translated in our text, ten thousands of ten thousands. It's the word myriads. Myriads of myriads, but now it's double myriads of myriads. Here, here is an army that in the description of Revelation, you think rivals even what John had seen surrounding the throne of God. I ask you, to what army would we appeal in the face of this one? There is no humanly possible way to stop this army. F, their appearance. Their appearance. Look at verse 17 with me, if you would, of Revelation 9. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Notice the way in which John is speaking here as he, he seems to make some sense. He seems to, uh, uh, to give the sense that what he's seeing is not to be taken strictly literally. We've seen that already. This, this is how, how I saw the horses. Uh, they, were, um, they had heads like lion's heads, again, showing a kind of metaphorical reality, but still we're supposed to get a sense of the terror involved. Even the destructive terror that John sees that must be conveyed to us. Uh, ordinarily, a breastplate, what does it do? It's, it's intended to protect the one who wears it. But here John sees what is intended to protect the one who wears it, but it, it is itself shows the destructive power of those who wear it. The breastplate itself, uh, um, as, as though it, it, it conveys the presence of this fire, right? And sulfur. So also, even the heads of, of, the, uh, of the horses, horses in, uh, are oftentimes used to, to carry one who, who, the person who rides the horse would actually deal the fatal blow, but the horses themselves, having the faces of lions, with power and terror and able to, uh, to tear and to destroy, their appearance, that even which terrifies, kills. G. 
There's no humanly possible way to stop this army. Gee, why? Because of the plagues. Look at the end of verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Right? It's almost like it's this image of, of here was an, an early morning kind of battle and, and the horses would, would, uh, would, would snort and breathe heavily and you can see what comes out of their mouths, but this is itself the plagues that kill. Fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. It's interesting to notice places in the Old Testament where this language shows up. I'll show you one, Genesis 19, passage known to us well. When the Lord brings his uh, judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, it says this, Genesis 19, verse 24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. In verse 28, And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. You notice the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur. Is there any holding that back when it came upon Sodom and Gomorrah? No less is there any humanly possible way to hold it back in this army. The plagues that kill. Their power, H. There's no humanly possible way to stop this army. Look at verse 19 with me again, if you would. For the power of the horses is in their mouths... And in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. There's certainly this sense of here, not only what is, is this a ferocious attack from the front as you have the, the faces of these lions, but also even the tails from the back, right before and behind. Whether in front or behind, here is the power that strikes but there's something important in, what's, in what we see here is the power of that which comes is in their mouths. We saw the fire, smoke, and sulfur coming out of their mouths. This is probably a reference to things that we've seen already multiple times in the book of Revelation as what is a deceptive and false teaching coming forth. That which proceeds from the mouth, oftentimes associated with words, and that which deceives, and that which kills, and that which hardens. Revelation 16, again, a parallel passage in the book of Revelation makes this more clear for us. Revelation 16, 12, we've seen this already. As the river Euphrates is dried, making way for the kings from the east, verse 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, and it ends up describing how it is that they perform signs, signs used, of course, to deceive in the book of Revelation, here is what is damning falsehood and deception that comes forth from their mouths. That's what comes forth from their mouths. Power as well in the tail is the bite of like serpents, like serpents' heads, and by means of them they wound. Again, some of the ways in which this is used in the Old Testament, especially Proverbs 23, show a kind of delirium that overtakes with the bite of a serpent. Listen to this. Proverbs 23, verse 32 Speaking of the intoxicating, uh, the intoxicating effect of, of wine, and it, uh, uh, it, it ends up using, um, uh, uh, using the image of a serpent this way. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. 
and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. And it goes on talking about a, a foolish delirium that's overtaken someone. Uh, here is uh, what it, a, a, a kind of army that comes forth in many ways uh, giving a sense of divine judgment upon the world in which people are confirmed in disobedient unbelief by way of a deception unto spiritual death made ultimate even by their physical death. And there is no humanly possible way to stop this army. Now here's one of the sobering things that we have to face. One of the sobering realities that's hard even for me as I'm up here preaching. I can't do anything to save those who are described here. They're released to kill a third of mankind. And all the imagery suggests what is an anticipation of the kind of hardened spiritual death that comes. I can't do anything to the third or with the third. But as for the rest of mankind, you need the seal because there is no humanly possible way to stop this army. We need the seal. But then we're faced with another problem, aren't we? A second sobering reality in this text. Here is this um, horrifically terrifying army that's described that kills. And what is the response amongst the rest of mankind? Look at this in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent the works of their hands. Here is the second sobering reality that we have to see. There is no natural way to change the human heart. You can't do it. You would think that this reality taking place all around you would suddenly wake you up, right? I mean, you have this surprising disjunction in the text as we're reading this. Terrifying things. You can imagine people, people falling and dying all around them. A third of mankind and the rest unaffected, unchanged. If you've been tracking with the way it is that we've been approaching much of the book of Revelation, you'll see that this is describing things that are happening. This is the kind of thing that takes place. Are there not people every day who die in hardened unbelief? Uh, taken in, and as described here, killed in a way that confirms what is still to come. Set apart even for the lake of fire as it's described later in Revelation. Uh, you know, we mentioned before in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, 
how it is that God is actively fulfilling his promises for his people, right? Um, how it is that even as his people suffer, and if he wills, uh, should die for the sake of the faith, even dying in the midst of what is a faith that looks to Christ, there is still the Lord fulfilling his promises as his people are, are brought into his presence and annoy unbroken, un, uninterrupted fellowship with God. Well, there's a kind of ominous corollary here. But as people die in hardened unbelief, the definite number is growing of those who are thrown into the lake of fire. And what effect does it have on the rest of mankind? Unchanged. There is no natural way to change the human heart. Why? Why? Because the worthlessness of what the human heart and our fallen state, the worthlessness of what we hold on to is already obvious to us. Look at this. I want you to notice this, how the worthlessness of idolatry is naturally obvious. Look again at the text. It makes this point. They did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Um, in one of uh, Shakespeare's plays, he reflects on uh, what took place uh, leading up to and following the assassination of Julius Caesar. Um, and, uh, and the conspiracy leading uh, to his death begins with a man reflecting um, upon the bizarre situation that here is a man, Julius Caesar, who is receiving a kind of uh, almost godlike reverence from the people. It's like, how, how is such a man held in such high regard today when just yesterday everyone knew him to be a mere mortal? He was feverish and sickly, just like the rest of us. When he needed help, he cried out for help. When, when he came as he thought close to death, he was afraid. Yesterday a mere mortal, but now today revered as though a god. It's obvious. Everybody knows it. But it makes no difference. Um, why is it that there are assassinations of leaders who claim divinity? Because everyone knows they're merely mortal. How is it that we see, especially through the pages of the Old Testament, here is idolatrous nation making war against idolatrous nation. Why? Because they know their idols are nothing. They're worthless. Even the way it's described here, notice the, the pattern, sim, sim, something similar to what we had before with the time, but here, gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood going from what is the more valuable and enduring to the least valuable and more easily corrupted and, corros and corroded, um, uh, wood disintegrating and falling apart. Some people may have idols of gold, but guess what? It's just as worthless as the wood. Why? Because it cannot see, it cannot hear, it cannot walk. Or idols, uh, they, they cannot see. You're, you're in need, you need deliverance, they can see nothing to help you. You cry out for help, they can hear nothing. You want to move them from here over to there, guess who has to do it? You do. See, here's the thing with idolatry. It, it, it give, uh, idols give nothing but require everything of you. 
Part of the burden of Old Testament prophets insofar as they talk about idolatry is, is they make the point that not only is idolatry foolishness, but everyone knows it's foolish. Isaiah 44 describes this, this situation of someone who takes what is a piece of wood and crafts it into a god and bows down to it, but the other half of the wood, what do they do? They build a fire and they cook their food over it. Why? Because they know it's merely wood. It's worthless. And everyone knows it. But it makes no difference because it is, there is no natural way to change the human heart. Now, the rest of us, as, as modern, advanced, contemporary readers, we oftentimes look at idolatry and we think, we scoff at it, right? We have the sense that we know it is, it is merely a piece of wood, no different than this table. We know it's not something worthy for us to bow down to. But we have to recognize this, right? What does it say about the human heart that it is so willing and able to bow down before what it knows is worthless? We have the same hearts, don't we? We're not so different from other peoples, are we? What you see in others, isn't it not a reflection upon what is in us naturally? But if you're not convinced, notice again in this passage, just as it moves from what almost seems to be the, the bizarre, and as one commentator said, something that, that seems to fit more in a, in a science fiction novel, to the very ordinary in verses 20 and 21, so also for us, if the idea of idolatry, the idea of actually physically bowing down to something that is made by your hands, if that just seems so foreign and strange to you, well, verse 21 is for you. Look at this. This is not unlike what we've seen, I hope, in our own hearts. Verse 21. Nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Uh, why, why, why is any human heart engaged with something as worthless as idolatry? Because it's not just about the thing that you cling to, but it's this, that it's not God. <laughs> Anything but God is the idea. That's the heart from which this comes. And guess what? The things that are described here, Murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, thefts. This is the mature fruit of a heart idolatry that says anything but God. Uh, the language is interesting. Notice the, the plurals, murders, sorceries, thefts. The idea is uh, perhaps looking at uh, giving a sense of how frequent this is, but also I think probably showing the, the, the broad category of what's included here. The reason sexual immorality, I think, is, is not plural is because it's already a broad category. Um, is there anything that we've ever done, that we've ever thought, that we've ever said, that's ever drawn our heart that is anything like what we see here? Have you ever hated someone in your own heart? Scriptures put that in the category of murders. Ever in any sense drawn in terms of a, a lustful gaze or desire upon someone else? There it is, sexual immorality, thefts, anything you see from others that you either take for yourself or you want to be your own instead of theirs, thefts. These things 
Do we not recognize them as coming from our own hearts? See, there's not that much difference between what, was, what is naturally true of ourselves and what we see here. And there is no natural way to change the human heart. In this text, again, a sobering reality. From verses 13 through 21, there are two kinds of people described. Did you catch that? From verses 13 to 21, there are two kinds of people described. There is the third of mankind that is killed, and the rest of mankind that does not repent. What are we to do? But there's another category that's described, as we've said before. Those who are sealed. If you have the seal of God, it's true that there is no humanly possible way to stop this army. But if you have the seal of God, the armory is not coming for you. It's true that there is no natural way to change the human heart. But if you have the seal of God, praise the Lord, we have new hearts. I want to take you briefly just to two passages that Pastor Matt had looked at with us when he preached on the seals, those who were sealed. The first is 2 Corinthians 1. Turn there if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. Listen to this. that describes the seal of God. Listen for where this seal is given. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We have the seal himself where we need him the most. In our hearts. There's no natural way to change this heart. But the spirit of God is given. There's our hope. Ephesians 1, turn there again. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, again describing including this seal and his description of salvation coming to them. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him that is in Christ, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, it's interesting to think about how exactly all these pieces fit together and what Paul is describing, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the presence of faith, perhaps even regeneration. If you're interested in that, we're going to talk about it a little bit next week in Sunday school, how those things fit together. But for now, what I want you to see is this. Who has the seal? Those who believe in him. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have the seal the promised seal of the Holy Spirit. The words in the book of Acts are clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no humanly possible way to stop the army we've described and there's no natural way to change the human heart. 
but those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Repent and believe in the gospel, the book of Acts says again, and you will receive what? The promised Holy Spirit, the seal of God. There's no natural way to turn these things aside, to convert our hearts. But God has done a supernatural work of his grace still to save. Do you have the seal? He seals his own by the Spirit.